Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On this week's episode of White Wine Question Time. If there are things in your life that you're not exactly proud of, but they are they would be interesting to the to the reader, you should try to tackle them. So I I did to write about the long affair I had with my husband before we married, and he was married at the time to somebody else, to a wonderful woman. I just said it. I said, but what I said was... You can swear, by the way. I said, bloody London Palladium. <laughs> this is fucking terrifying. I said, this is fucking terrifying. I just walk on, eat cake, say what I think, walk off and get paid. <laughs> Why are we paying her all this money? <laughs> it's that easy. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of life's great overachievers, a woman who's inspired and impressed at every twist and turn in a life that reads of risk, guts, innovation, hard work and extraordinary success. A dame who at 83 has her foot firmly to the floor and is, quote, growing old energetically, as she puts it. As well as launching new businesses in her 83rd year and being the queen of the Great British Bake Off, she's just toured the UK and US with her one-woman show, is a regular magazine cover girl and continues to break new ground with a CV that reads like it should belong to three different people. 
Born and raised in South Africa during apartheid, her mother was a famous actress and an outspoken campaigner against apartheid. The family enjoyed a life of great privilege and her studies took her to Paris, where she discovered the joys of sex, food and rock and roll. And it was from there that her career in food started. First as a caterer in London after studying at the famous Cordon Bleu School, then as a chef, a Michelin-starred restaurateur and a teacher, heading up her own cookery school, which she sold with an impressive £15 million turnover in the 90s to start quite literally a new chapter professionally, this time as an author, going on to write seven best-selling novels and 12 cookbooks. She was also the first woman appointed to the board of British Railways, tasked with improving their terrible food and customer service. She's been a political campaigner and for 11 years judged BBC Two's Great British Menu before heading over to the Bake Off tent in 2017, where she's been ever since. Away from work, she's a mother to Danny Kruger, a Conservative MP and one-time advisor to both David Cameron and Boris Johnson, and her filmmaker daughter, Lee Dar, who she adopted from Cambodia and who's just adopted her own child, making her a grandmother. For 28 years, she was happily married to their father, Rain, who she dated secretly as his mistress for 13 years, whilst he was married to her mother's best friend before going on to eventually marry him in 1974, all the way until his death in 2002. Having thrown herself into work as a way of dealing with her grief, she found happiness again with her second husband, John, who she met when she was 70. And having got married when she was 76, they live together now in rural bliss with their dogs in the Cotswolds. As life's well-lived go, she is right up there with the best of them. I cannot wait to talk to her. Let's dial her up, shall we? It's Dame Prue Leith. How are you? Wow, Kate. <laughs> that was a bit of a marathon. Wasn't it? But thank you. Thank you. How is it hearing all of that back, all of those different chapters? Well, it makes me feel quite tired. <laughs> <laughs> but then I have lived a very long time. I mean, people are always astonished that I've done so much. But, you know, if, you've, if you're 83, you've had lots of time to do lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the weird thing. And the other thing is I think I've been hugely lucky for two reasons. One is that I'm very energetic and healthy. So, you know, it's, it, I, I'm not doing anything I didn't want to do. It just, I just have the energy to do it. I mean, Prue, you don't stop. The entrepreneur in you is, is alive no. and well. I mean, you're 83 and you've just Prue, launched like your homeware range. When I read the, the website, it was li- literally like you were talking to me. And it, there's no hard sell with it. It's just a passion. And you no. talk about how you task them there with making sure that they meet your standards and what you do and don't like. It's you, you prueify everything that you do. And I just wonder but, what, you know, what, what makes you want to start big new ventures like this when arguably you're pretty stacked. You use wonderful words like entrepreneur and so on. Sounds so grand. I think of myself as a trader. You know, like yeah. a barrow boy, a barrow girl. <laughs> I like, I love, I I love um, making things and selling things, and I like things to be really. I would like to. I mean, I suppose all my career has been um, all. I mean, very egotistical, but it's all about me. I mean, it's what I like. I mean, the, I would never sell anything that I wouldn't want to wear, or that I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't enjoy it. And so everything I do tends to have lots of color and it's quite simple block colors. It's not very complicated, but it's in your face. Nothing, nothing subtle about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we were, before we started hitting the record button, 
I said to you that I feel like I have spent the weekend in your company and I have very puffy eyes today because I was determined to get to the end of your autobiography, which has been kind of refreshed in line with your one woman show, which by the way, let's just talk about that, shall we? I mean, in in your 80s, you're out touring for the first time, not just in the UK, not just a couple of London shows. No, you toured America and then you brought it to the UK. You sold out the Palladium Prue. I mean, this is incredible stuff. (laughs) At any well, age, by the way. I was so frightened of the lady. Were you? Lady. I was absolutely... I mean, it's huge, that parade, Palladium. Yeah. It, yeah. it, I think it, it seats two and a half thousand people or something. Mm. And, I, and by the way, I didn't feel it, but I filled the stalls and the um, and the circles. So all I could see from the stage, it looked full and it looked absolutely terrifying. And, you know, I had... It was the 34th... Um, evening of my show and I'd been all over England with it so I'd done it 34 times and I'd been to do two two tryouts as you said in America I'm going to go back in the autumn to do to do the rest you know but I did two tryouts in in, in New York and LA so I had really done the show a lot so you'd think I'd bloody well know it by now and I walked onto the stage and I just saw this huge audience and I thought I'm in the, on the London Palladium stage. Just think of all the people who trod, yeah. the, trod these boards. And I, and I just dried up. I just Did couldn't. You? I just had a, I, the first time I had a complete dry. And and then what what followed that was I just immediately had a rush of anger because I thought, how could I not get it right after 35 times? This is ridiculous. And so I just said it. I said, but what I said was, you can swear, by the way. I said, bloody London Palladium. <laughs> this is fucking terrifying. I said, this is fucking terrifying. And then I felt much better because I'd had a little explosion. <laughs> the audience absolutely loved it because it made them relax because they were probably a bit nervous too. Thought, oh, God, this is going to look at this again. This is going to be really embarrassing, this old lady trotting along the stage. And then suddenly they were all happy because I had... <laughs> lost it <laughs> but sometimes uh, that's that's a great way to connect with an audience isn't it is to show your vulnerabilities well yeah well, yeah and actually some one or two people said to me afterwards because we had a party at the end they said um, was was that scripted you know was it deliberate because it worked brilliantly and I'm like, <laughs> it wasn't scripted i would never script that you know <laughs> Because you were literally, I mean, when I looked at the Instagram post that you put up, kind of explaining what the show was, it's a warts and all. I mean, you spin it on on Instagram. It comes with captions, which are very handy, um, where you talk about the fact that you're talking about everything from geriatric love um, and divorce to your business life. I mean, there there is widowhood, falling in love, disastrously in your 60s, gloriously in your 70s. I mean... You just went there, Prue. I love that. Well, I think if you well, it started with writing an autobiography. If you write, you know, you're going to write your life. I thought a lot about this, and I thought, shall I put everything in, or shall I be, you know, discreet and careful and so on? And I decided that the rule should be: if it's interesting, it should go in. Right. If it's boring, it shouldn't. You know, so many. Um, um, autobiography, especially from from business people, are just one long um, list of their successes yeah. in business or, or, or posh people they've met, a sort of name dropping, you know, endless name dropping. And it's not interesting. 
if there are things in your life that you're not exactly proud of, but they are, they would be interesting to the to the reader. You should try to tackle them. So I I did write about a long affair I had with my husband before we married, and he was married at the time to somebody else, to a wonderful woman, to your mother's best friend. Yeah, exactly. And so I wrote about that because I thought it's um. You know, to skip it when when Rain was the most important person in my life, both because he was my um, mentor and chairman, and um, you know the love of my life and all the rest of it. Um, I how could I how could I not tell his whole story? So I did. You're right, though. I mean, you really don't shirk from anything like uncomfortable truths in the book. And I would encourage people, rather than me to try and justify uh, some of it, I would encourage people to dive in and, and enjoy it in all its context, because context is everything, isn't it? But one thing you did say in your book, um, and you've said several times, is something I really wanted to pick up with you and, and dive in on, if that's okay. Um, so in place of doing three regular questions, um, I wanted to play around with the idea of personal revolutions, because you've said before that you think everyone needs to have their own personal revolution every 25 years, which means that you've been through three of your own thus far and are working very hard on your fourth. So can we talk through your three revolutions? Well, yes, I mean, I never thought at the time that I set out to have three uh, three revolutions. I um, the, the first couple just happened. But then I realized this is a very good idea. I mean, I, my first, the first um, 25 years of my life, I was building up my business. So I was, um, I was first of all a caterer. I was, you know, I started in a bed sitter cooking people's dinners, um, you know, going around the tube with my ingredients in one hand and my tools in the other. And then, I mean, you really uh, were a one-woman band to begin with, weren't you, Prue? Yes, I was, yeah. absolutely. And you were doing uh, corporate lunches, corporate dinner parties, cooking for businesses, really. And cooking for housewives, cooking for posh women in Kensington. And, you know, oh, were you? Well, yeah, and they so, tried to pass it off as their own. Yeah, they did. <laughs> one, this one woman who I cooked, I cooked her dinner parties for her. One day I heard through the hatch, you know, she had a hatch from her between her, her um, kitchen and her dining room. And I could hear everything that was going on in the dining room. And somebody said, um, you know, this this food is absolutely delicious. Can I have your cook's name? Because I'd like her to do my director's lunches for me in the city. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. She said, that girl in the kitchen, she's just there to do the washing up. She said, I do all the cooking. I wouldn't dream of having a cook. And I was so bloody indignant. I wanted to in through the hatch and put them all right. Did you? No, I didn't. What I did did do, though, was I had hung up all the coats when the guests arrived. So I put one of my business cards into every pocket I could find on all the coats. In that, yeah. And and I wrote on the top of the cards, your dinner was cooked by. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, it worked, because the next morning, that guy rang me up and he said, um, you know, I, I, um, um, I, he said, I really thought it would dinner was absolutely delicious and he said would you, when he asked me if I'd do his lunches and he said you're a very good cook he said but I was far more impressed with your marketing skills <laughs> it was brilliant <laughs> so anyway that was my first uh, so, so then I opened a restaurant because um, I'd always wanted a restaurant but you can't open a restaurant if you don't have any money so I started doing catering first 
Then I opened a restaurant in 1969. And then I re- in 1974, I realized I really needed a, a, a chef school, a cookery school, because I wanted to have, I didn't want to have to train chefs once they got to me. I wanted them to arrive trained. And I wanted them to pay me to train them. And then I could hire them <laughs> rather than me having to pay them and then train them. You're so smart, Prue. And also, you have just skipped over the bit where in between opening a restaurant and opening a cookery school, you were awarded a Michelin star. Did have a Michelin star. It took a long time, but we did get one. You did. And I, and I got Businesswoman of the Year. You did. Both achievements, by the way. Um, I mean, obviously, Businesswoman of the Year is, is yeah. only ever going to be won by a woman. But to, to become awarded, uh, to, to, to win that Michelin star, you were woman. very rare in the, in the world of chefs because women, A, didn't own their own restaurants, and B, the hours were never chef-friendly for a, a woman. Women, no. Yeah. They, they, and they aren't now no. because... Um, and they they never will be until men are prepared to look after the children at home, you know. Quite because all if you look at Michelin style chefs, they're ne- women. They're nearly all they don't have children or they're not married. Um, so that's a, a problem. But actually, to be fair, I didn't really gain that um, Michelin star. The, the chap who did is Alex Floyd, who's a top chef. And he he got us the Michelin star, really, not me. Sorry. I just owned it. I owed the joint. He got it. Yeah. But you, Prue, you owned the joint. Um, right. You know, you, you didn't come through multiple kitchens. You were self, not self-taught. You studied yeah. at the yeah. Cordon Bleu School of, of Cookery. Mm-hmm. Um, but you hadn't had the same route to business as a lot of your competitors. You have trailed your own you know, path, really, in so many ways. Well, I did the three businesses catering, restaurant, and cookery school. Um, and then I realized that what I really wanted to do, I was all the time, at the same time, I was writing um, for food for newspapers. I was the Daily Mail, um, uh, you know, food lady. Where does this come from, Prue, this ability to see an opportunity and bring it to life? I don't know. My um, my mother was an actress, and she had a theatre company. Um, and she was pretty brave. I realise now, because I didn't think so at the time. I just thought she was, you know, my, my, my mum's an actress, you know. But you know, she was. You know, she she decided that she were we were in South Africa, mm-hmm. and she got very frustrated because the sanctions against South Africa, because it was apartheid time then, um, were really very restrictive so she couldn't do um she couldn't do any plays that new plays in england and john mortimer at the time was the head of the playwrights guild or something or writers guild and so she came to england to bash him around the head and and basically to say look if you want to change apartheid in south africa you're not going to do it by burning the books what you need to do is to make sure that plays, especially plays that are going to enlighten people and make them realize, you know, there were wonderful plays about apartheid, which my mother was putting on, but she wanted to have English playwrights as well as just South African playwrights. And and her solution was to come to England and fight him, and she did. And she persuaded him, and he, and he got the um, writer's guild to drop their sanction. And we must remember that Times were very different back then. Your mother would have been quite alone in that as a woman. 
yeah. uh, coming well, to a different country to try and demand change. You know, yeah. that's, that's really something. And, and she was a really good actress, and she, and she used to campaign against apartheid. She belonged to an organization called the Black Sash, which was a women's group. And they were sort of very sort of middle-class educated women who stood on the town hall steps and just peacefully holding the placards saying, you know, you know, something about apartheid being wrong. And, and I remember her coming home one day absolutely spattered with egg yolks because people had been pitching eggs at these women. Extraordinary, it's, isn't it? Yeah, and then, so so that's where you get some of your chutzpah from, for sure. Yeah. Um, but well, we talk about you know this first revolution alongside your business uh, life. There was a very different kind of uh, life to to those of your friends happening in your personal life. You'd you'd come to London. You were staying with friends of the family, um, uh, yeah. the Krugers, and yes. um, you became. Reigns mistress, as you've said, for 13 years, which in so many ways enabled you, to, it freed you up, Prue, to build your business, didn't it? Because you weren't yeah. running home to be part of a relationship in the conventional sense. Yeah, no, and I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't having to cook, cook for a husband every night. No, um, no I, absolutely. And um, I once said that in a, um, at a literary festival. And the the next morning, the Daily Mail ran a piece saying, I, said, I just said, you know, I never asked Rain to leave his wife because I was very happy. Um, you know, I was building my business. I didn't have to, be, I had none of the duties of wife and I had all the pleasures of somebody who loved me and, and so on. And so, so I, I, I wasn't pressing for marriage. So Daily Mail then ran a headline saying, um, Prue Leith recommends adultery as a <laughs> solution to successful business or something. No, I was not recommending. <laughs> so, um, but yes, I did. We did have thirteen secret years, um, and nobody ever guessed because we were very discreet about it. But it was easier in a way because he was he was a family friend. And he was the chairman of my company, and he'd helped me enormously. And everybody knew that we were great friends, and that he was my sort of mentor because he was twenty years older than me. And so, um, you know, if I mean, we didn't go out to dinner or anything that would create any, any kind of um, suspicion. So we just, but you know, if people saw us together, they thought it was because we worked together. Yeah. So you had. A lot more free time to focus on being a businesswoman. But yeah, that must have yeah. been quite lonely at times, Prue, because there weren't a lot of other women doing what you were doing in that space. No, but I, you know what I did? We, I joined a bunch of women, which is still going strong. It's not, um, but it was, at the time, it was, um, there were 20 of us, and it was started by four women. One, one ran um, the independent broadcasting society, the IBA. One ran... Um, Tim, um, Tim was telly. <laughs> one, one ran, um, she was a big chief in the foreign office. She was the head um, Mandarin in his um, civil service in the foreign office. And so uh, so we just set up a, a, um, an organization for women who were in business and who had 
um, who had a, a substantial budget. You know, I think we, we decided that you had to turn over a million pounds a year or something, whatever it was. Can't remember. Um, because we realised that men had all the opportunity to talk to other businessmen because they would go to the golf clubs and they'd go to pubs after. Yeah. And women never had a chance to do that because they most women were going home to their um, families and they were certainly not, didn't belong to golf clubs, didn't have time to go walking around golf all Saturday. So <laughs> they had other things to do. So we used to meet once a month and it was such fun because then there was this bunch of 20 women and we and we would help each other. And, and I remember the woman, the one woman who was the head of the, um, I think it's called the housing authority, the government job. And she decided that there should be a woman on every single building society board. She just wrote to everybody and said, you've got to have a woman on your board. This is ridiculous. Make an effort. And then she, they said, but we don't know any women. And she, she said, well, I know 20 very good women. <laughs> Is that how the job with British Rail came about, Prue? Because you were the first woman appointed to the board there. That was the very first board I ever sat on. And, and that, I mean, now I'm a bit ashamed of this because it's, it's just so different today. Today you wouldn't get on any board without an enormous amount of headhunting and you'd go through a lot of filters and there'd be, you know, checks and you know, examinations would take forever. I mean, but in those days, um, it was it was a question of chairman's chance. The chairman used to just choose the board because it was the board. You know, the board is the chairman's board, and he would just and the chairman was Peter Parker, who was a wonderful businessman, absolutely fantastic. He was the first, uh, and he. Um, He's, he wanted me to be on the board because he used to come to my restaurant and he knew, I, he knew I, I could run a business and he knew I cared about um, customer service because that's what the restaurant business is and mm -hmm. catering and school. They are all about um, you know, serving the customer well and he was anxious to have somebody on the board who would speak for the customer because most of the people on the board were engineers. They, they knew about running trains and tracks and and the the public spending borrowing right and the you know mrs thatcher's objection to trains and you know you know they knew about the politics they knew about the finance they knew about the engineering but they didn't ever mention the word customer or service or, or service or, pay, or passenger so so he put me on the board extraordinary so extraordinary so when we look at this kind of first revolution where do you close the chapter on revolution number one? Was it the sale of the cookery school? Was it the... Yes, what I did was I wanted to... I had been writing all the time. I'd been writing cookbooks and I had been writing columns for the Daily Mail and, as I said, for the Daily Mail and then after that for other newspapers, for the Sunday Express and the Guardian and all sorts of people. And you can write cookery... Um, in and around your day job because, you know, if you have an hour off, you can write a recipe or you could, if you're writing journalism, I did a lot of um, travel journalism and a bit of um, general journalism, sort of opinion stuff, which you can do um, in odd, odd hours. But I wanted to write a novel. I was really desperate to write a novel and I realized that the only way I could do it would be to sell the business because I needed to 
be able to spend long stretches of time in that world that you create when you write a novel. You, and you can't just jump in and out in the same way as you can jump in and out of a piece about, you know, uh, I mean, I'm writing a piece at the moment about traveling around um, on a road trip, in, about a road trip in America. And it, it, it doesn't matter if I pick it up after we've finished our podcast, because, you know, I, I'm just writing about a little bit of the road trip, and then I'll write another bit two days' time. You know, but you can't do that in a novel. So I decided that. I decided I've got to, um, I've got to sell the business. And, and there were other reasons. I was heading for 50. No, I was already 50. And my husband was heading for um, 70, Rain. And I thought he was a writer and also my chairman. And we decided, look, let's just sell the business because then we can be at home together more and um, we can write. And I can do other things uh, as well because I wanted to get stuck into more charity stuff and I wanted to and I love the non-executive director business so I thought I'd do a bit more of that so I decided to sell and and it was a good time because all the businesses were doing very well by then we we employed 500 people blimey bro and we had um and and neither of my children wanted to take business on so you know it just was the right thing to do and do you know I I thought at the time, I'll have withdrawal symptoms because I'm so used to running this business. And I thought, well, I'll keep the restaurant because my office was over the restaurant. So I thought, well, I'll keep the restaurant and I'll sell the, the, the catering business and the school. And as soon as I'd sold those two, I wanted to sell the restaurant as well because, you know, it just seemed silly to have the restaurant and not the other. You know, so, so I didn't never regretted it for a second I just thought well that's past I loved it I absolutely loved it but it was gone and then I got stuck into the novel business and then I wrote a lot of novels ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But within that first revolution, you'd also become a mother, and and, and your 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 route to parenting was was very different with each child. Um, how did that how did that play out um, in terms of impacting your ability to 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 work, and obviously be in a relationship with their father? Well, exactly. I mean, 
first of all, um, I, you know, I said I, Rain and I were together for 13 years secretly. And then I was 34. And I don't know what happened, but many women will tell you that around about then, suddenly the desire for a child hits you like a, you know, something must, ha must happen to your hormones. You know, your body says, look, you're getting old. If you're not going to get on with it, you'll never have a child. And you suddenly want a baby so badly. And so, so at that point, I thought I've got to leave Rain because I've absolutely got to leave him because he's he's not going to leave Nam. He he much admired her and loved her, and she was twenty years older than him, and it, you know, so he had no intention of leaving her. Um, so I left him, and I left him by the simple expedient of running away with somebody who was in said he was in love with me, and I thought, well, that's that'll do. You know, I need <laughs> I, I need a. I need help in, in, in getting away from rain. So we, we went, we, we disappeared together. We went to, um, first of all, to Austria and Egypt and all over the place. Yeah, you literally ran away. It was a bit like running away with the circus, except he it wasn't was. the circus. He was just... He was absolutely mad. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I mean, I basically I left my... I, by then I had managers, you know, but there was nobody and Rain was still my chairman of the company, so he was left with chairing the company without a managing director, but with with my, anyway, I just vanished and he, and he also was left with dealing with my cat because <laughs> <laughs> I need to learn of all the headaches yeah. there's one That's more for you anyway. and um, anyway, so we I was away with this guy for about a month, and um, we very swiftly realized that this was a mistake. I didn't love him. He didn't really love me. He was running away from his wife. We realized that he should never have left because he loved her. It was just a mad, mad, stupid idea, but it helped me because it made me make that jump away from Rain. And the best thing about it was that Rain realized when I was gone that the only reason that he could bear his marriage to Nan, which was not unhappy in any way, but it was possible for him to stay with her because there was me. Mm. You know, he had he had me as well as Nan, and so it was fine. But when I wasn't there, he he couldn't bear it, and so he. And he he knew that I really was serious about I, I I did I wanted a baby, and so he left Nan, and um, and he and he 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 rang me up. He, I didn't. He must have found out from my secretary exactly where I was, but I was in Tel Aviv at the time, and he rang me up and said, "Come home, we'll have a baby, and I can't live without you." And I was in floods of tears. And I said, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm committed now. I'm, you know, I was trying to stay away, and of course, I came home and I went back to him, and and um, we had, and then of course, I got pregnant, and then so that so as soon as I was pregnant, there was no, we had to tell Nan, and just it was tough because this, you know, Nan was somebody that you loved, he loved, she was your mom's best friend. It was, I mean, it couldn't have been more complicated. And yet still, 
you managed to make it work, Prue. You all retained a friendship. Your mother was eventually okay with it. I mean, how do you do that? How do you how do you do that? It's extraordinary. Rain was uh, Rain was really cl- um, he was just determined. He would he just said, "Don't have enough friends to lose them." And um, I, we all love each other. This is we're not going to let this destroy us. And then. I mean, she just took her cue from, from Rain, I think, or maybe it might he took hers from her, but, but she said the same thing. She would say to her, I remember if one of her really smart, she was an actress, and one of her um, really famous actress friends said to her, how can you go at weekends and stay with Prue and Rain? I mean, how can you do that? I mean, that woman, she's, you know, a witch, and she stole your husband, and how could you, how can... You know, well, how can you go every weekend or, or every second weekend and s- stay with them in the country? And Nan said, are you going to have me every weekend? Shall I come to you instead? You know, she said, they are my friends. And she said, I love them. And she said, yes, it's been hard, but, you know, Prue's still Prue. And she was amazingly uh, forgiving. I mean, an extraordinary woman. But also a very educated woman in as much as she understood that life was complicated. She had worked in and around the theatre, so was exposed to a different kind of life to women of that generation. So, you know, listen, what you did, as you're the first to acknowledge, wasn't great. But life is complicated sometimes and she she seemed to be able to to roll with that. There you go. Remarkable, isn't it, that you can all, um, you know, find a way to be. And, um, and you obviously did. Which takes you to kind of where revolution number two begins. You're a young, you're, you're, you're the head of a young family. Um, you've decided to start a brand new career. You had no idea whether or not you'd make a success of it, but that didn't, I, I sense in your book, Prue, that that was never a consideration for you, that it might not have worked. No, but you know, I mean, I, I, there's definitely the design fault in me. I never think things won't work. <laughs> And you always think they're going to be a terrific success. And the very first thing I ever tried to do when I was still in a bed sitter um, in um, Earl's Court, when I was at the Court of Blair, and because I, I knew the theatre well, because of Nan and my, and my, well, my friends, my brother was an actor, my mother was an um, actress, I thought that I should start a business which would be I called it matinee collations, and the idea was that you'd have a little tray of absolutely delicious goodies in a um, lunch or supper or um, in a dinner, which I'd deliver to the stage door for actors in their dressing rooms. Because I knew that actors often, you know, it's difficult if you're, mm. you know, you've you got to either, in between matinee and you've either got to get all, you know, get out of costume and, and go out to a pub or something and, and or eat it. You know. So I thought this would be a brilliant idea. It was a disastrous idea. I mean, first of all, I thought matinees only happened on Wednesdays and Saturdays. That's nonsense. They happen all sorts of odd days, different theatres do odd days. They don't happen at the same time. I would turn up at the theatre and find it was completely dark because the play folded. <laughs> <laughs> There you are with all your food. Nobody there. <laughs> I have a record that there's a stage doorman who are the guardians, you know, the sort of gatekeepers who don't let anybody in, um, wouldn't let me in without a bribe. So 
the first thing that happened is most of my profit went to the stage door <laughs> in order to deliver them. It was a complete failure. But fortunately, um, it didn't last very long and it didn't cost very much, you know. And lessons <laughs> learned, right? But when it came to writing, you already had a name. You were, and you were very successful. People respected you enormously in your field. And there you were going to put a name, your name, to something that you were completely unproven in, in, in as much as you'd never written fiction. Yes, um, and my agent was very against it. She said, stick to cooking, you know. Um, she, she said, I'll go. said, you know, I don't want another failed author on my <laughs> failed, you know, novelist on my books. Um, but I, I was very insistent. Um, and, you know, even if it hadn't worked, I would have, I was still glad to have written it. And I think I would probably have gone on writing novels, even if they hadn't got published. I don't know. Maybe I'd have Do despaired. Um, but you did it for 25 years, Pro. I mean, that's that's a hell of an innings. And um, and you, you've not I said that there's not another book to come yet, maybe, is there? Well, I'm halfway through a novel, but I, I'm, it's not going well, so I don't guarantee it. <laughs> It's going to see the light of day. Um, but um, and anyhow, I keep getting sidetracked into cookbooks because it's, you know, that's what everybody wants. You know? yeah. And, and so I enjoy it. I mean, I've just done one called Bliss on Toast, and it's yeah. a huge success just because it's, it's so, so simple. <laughs> it's delicious, by the way. The dog with the bone springs to mind, Prue. I the, would never underestimate any battle that you entered in terms of who's going to win. <laughs> but that's a slam dunk. Even at 83, I'd still back you as my winning horse. <laughs> oh, well, that might be unwise. <laughs> but during those years also, there was a different life for you. You moved to the country, is that right? You, Yeah. Uh, well, well we, um, Rain and I had moved when the children were two. Right. Very, very young. So I, I lived in the same house um, until I sold it a couple of years ago for forty-five years yeah. in in the country. I You're in Morton on the Marsh, aren't you? Near yeah, Morton, beautiful. Yeah. I'm from Cheltenham, yeah. so I know it well. Oh, Many a school trip to Morton on the Marsh, <laughs> Morton on the Water. Yes, <laughs> indeed. How was it having that kind of? Massive life change, because for a woman that was foot to the floor, living life in the fast lane, I mean, I know you didn't slow down as such, but it was a different pace of life. Country life versus city life in itself. Um, you know, you walk into the deep beat of a different drum, aren't you? Well, yes. And and when I first came to, um, you know, like a shop in Morton, because I had that London thing of everything has to be now and quickly, quickly, quickly. I would be standing thinking, God, these women are going to go gossiping forever. Are they ever going to stop asking each other about the children? Like, get... But then I realized that actually that's really nice. If you know the, know the woman who's slicing the ham well enough to want to inquire about her children, that's proper life. You know, that's how it should be. Yeah. And um, so I, I, had, I did learn to just swap pace. Yeah. Um, it's good for you, but, isn't it? But I was still, I mean, all the... Um, I mean, always, um, I was working in London for at least three days a week and my husband was staying at home because he, he was the writer, uh, uh, well, main writer. And, um, if I was, when I was running the, co the company, obviously I had to go to London all the time. And I used to go up on Monday and come back on Friday. 
And then gradually, of course, I did what everybody does, is start to go off on Tuesday and come yeah. Thursday. <laughs> and, and then um, after I sold the business, then obviously I could stay at, at home more. And we still had a flat in London. And then when my husband died, my I decided to sell the flat in London. And um, he thought I would sell the house in the country and live in London because so many of our friends were in London. But actually, I couldn't bear to leave the house, and I especially couldn't bear to leave the garden. And I didn't care about our London flat at all. It was an ugly, you know, perfectly nice, but no, you, you couldn't love it. Um, so, uh, but after my, after Rain died, we we did a really wonderful thing. My two children who who had a little house, they shared a house um, in North Kensington near Wormwood Scrubs, and Rain and I had this rather boring flat in um, near Paddington Station. So we sold the flat and we sold their house. And um, I and we bought a house in a really a derelict old house in Notting Hill, and we turned it into it was a big tall house with five floors, and so I had the middle floor. My son had the ground floor, and my daughter had the floor above us, and we had separate flats. And then we had one flat flat on the top which we grandly called the penthouse, but it was really an attic flat. And then <laughs> basement, which was called the garden flat. <laughs> so we left the top and the bottom, and the three of us lived at our flats for five years. And for a widow, it's the best thing in the world <gasps> to have your children close to you. And I was sandwiched between the two of them. And we didn't see each other all that much because we were all working and busy. But I knew they were there, and we all had peace to each other's flats. And the only um, thing I would complain about is my son tended to treat my flat as a shop. You know, <laughs> go and help himself. Yes, he'd come and help himself and not pay. You know, <laughs> swipe the champagne or more, or even more irritatingly, he'd swipe the loo paper or <laughs> the salt or something. You know. Pray I blame the parents. <laughs> <laughs> And but then that lasted for five years. By which time they had boyfriends that they uh, were going to marry, and they needed more space. And so, and I was sort of used to widowhood by then. So I that's a that uh, was a, a a very nice balm at a difficult time that kept you close enough together to not feel that you were so alone. I guess yeah, they were fantastic. They really were. I mean, and then this brings us to Revolution Number Three because then. Television comes calling. You start dating in your 60s. And then you, you give us all hope, Prue. You meet the man you next marry at 70. Thank God for you. <laughs> well, I must say, and he is wonderful. He just bumbled in past us. I don't know if you saw him. Um, I did. <laughs> did, you, did you think at that point that you had um, another act in you? That I mean, I, I'm, as I'm asking that, I'm thinking, why did I even ask that? Look at her. Of course she did. I actually didn't think that, uh, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're widowed, you, you, nothing makes you angrier than somebody saying, don't worry, I'm sure you'll find somebody else. Mm. Well, I was 62 or something when, when Rain died. And I, 
And I, I hated people trying to comfort me in that way because I just thought, no, I, I don't want anybody else in it. But then found it was really strange. When I met John, I found exactly the same. Um, falling in love is the same at any age. You have exactly the same sensations, you know, you all half goes too fast and you feel slightly sick and you think, oh, is it going to ever rain? And, you know, if I text him and submit to you forward, you know, do you think he'll, you know, I mean, ridiculous. <laughs> so you were a teenager all over again. Exactly. Oh, how lovely. It's lovely. It is lovely. And, you know, and then, and John had been a, a fashion designer and a and a manufacturer for many years, very successful. And when he first met me, I was, um, I was well, I think he, I, I'd met him in, in somebody's house, you know, just having a drink. Um, but he, then I was getting to give, give a talk at um, a local village thing for something things to do, a book I'd written. So, um, and I knew he was going to come to this um, talk in the, in the village hall, and um, so he, so I thought, well, I'd better, because by then I thought I really fancy him, because I'd met him a couple of times. Did you? So you yeah. turned your head pro. I did, and he really did, and I thought, mm, if this is going anywhere, I, I ought to be honest with him, and I am 70, I just turned 70, and I knew he was younger than me, I didn't know how much younger, but I just thought, um, I've got to... You know, if he's going to if he's going to get out of my life, he better do it immediately before anything happens. Before we're we've even held hands, you know, he better know. Because I don't I don't want the heartbreak of anyway. So I so I worked into my speech the fact that I was seventy, so that he would. You know, so I thought, <laughs> why would he get up and leave? He's stuck around. So anyhow, and we've been together twelve years now, and we and we 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 had five years together, and then we decided we'd get married. I'm not quite sure why, because you know we could have got married after a year, but anyway, we just crept up on us the idea of getting married, and so we did. And you both love the garden, don't you? That's that's something you both, you and John, really love to get your hands dirty in the garden. Do yeah, I do? And so, although I'm getting so crossed, ancient, and my you know, if I fall over these days, I can't get up again. <laughs> so, Prue, I'm 50 and I can't get up again, trust me. <laughs> so it gets harder, doesn't it? <laughs> my gardening is slightly more directing these days. But John's, <laughs> John's still very active. Anyway. Um, and then the television. I mean, for 11 years on the BBC, um, judging the great British menu. But did, I mean, that I can't imagine that, that for one minute you went looking for that or that you went looking for Bake Off, and yet remarkable success, giving you a kind of third string to your CV. I know, it's extraordinary. And at the end, you know, that 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 sort of period we've been talking about, my second period, that lasted um, a good 20 years. Um, and then I've been doing nearly 20 years of telly now. <laughs> and you know what? It's such, it's so easy. I mean, I actually still love it. Because... You know, if you think about it, I don't have to do anything. I just have to, you know, I don't have to learn a script. I don't have to 
um, write. I didn't have to write a script, learn any lines. I didn't have to do any um, rehearsals. You know, most cookery programs are really complicated. You have to make sure that it all fits in four minutes or whatever it is you're doing. You have to worry about the ingredients being in the right place and the and the the you know the gas is turned on at the right moment. It's it's very tricky. I don't have to do any of that. I just walk on, eat cake, say what I think, walk off and get paid. <laughs> I, I often say this, and I'm rather nervous that one day Love Productions, who are the producers of Bake Off, will think, well, why are we paying her all this money? <laughs> it's that easy. Because... Um, as a viewer, we sit and wait to hear your verdict. You know, you and Paul, you've you've earned you've earned our respect. So that's what they yes. pay you the big bucks for, Prue. But you haven't just sat there and gone, "Oh, this is a nice easy gig." You've then done your. I mean, you've done your own clothing line. You've got your own specs line. You've got homeware. You've got jewelry. Um, you've been on more magazine covers than most supermodels in the last two years, and. You've, you've not used this as a sort of lean back opportunity. You're leaning right in and still working really hard. I know. Well, you know, we started um, we started filming Bake Off a few days ago um, for the next next this year's Bake Off, and I hadn't seen Paul for the six months since we. Well, I had seen him because he came to my show, but apart from that, um, I hadn't seen him. So. And so everybody was asking what everybody had been doing, you know. And, and I said, Paul, what have you been doing? Because usually he's writing books or he's touring or he's doing other programs. He said, absolutely nothing. I've done nothing for six months. It's been bliss. Oh, I guess that doesn't hold any appeal to you, Pri. Well, I'm sort of jealous of it because I also like doing nothing. I mean, Dear. one of the things I love doing is nothing. Dear, I can't yeah. imagine that you ever find joy in rest. Well, no, I do. I do. I do. I love it. I love loving up, lying around reading and I love sleeping. Mm-hmm. I'm wise. You know, I, I, lockdown taught me about having a siesta and I tell you what, I'm oh, really addicted to it now. What oh, time do you nap? Well, any time I can get. But usually, um, you know, I like to get, if I can get to, to bed by three, get up at half past four, that's perfect. Happy days. How continental, proof. Um, so as this third chapter, you, as you said, you know, you're coming up on 20 years in telly. Is there a fourth revolution? And if so, what does it look like? <laughs> the next 25 years, well, I, I'm not sure I could guarantee anybody that, you know, I'll be. No, I think this must go be my swan, swan song. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I, I mean, I do want to do a few other things. Um, I'm very keen to, um, I've, I've, my daughter and I have started a television um, production company. Have you? Um, yeah. Uh, well, she and two of her friends, who are all really talented women in their forties, they um, one of them worked for, for Disney and one for Endemol and what you know that they, they and they're one of them is a top um, commissioner for um, another company. So they, they really know what they're doing. And so we thought, well, we'll have this all-female production company. It's called Relish, actually, which is the name of my... Wonderful. And um, we haven't got our first commission yet, but we're working hard on it. So I'd like to, I'd like to have more time to help her and to do something for them. 
But we've got some really good ideas, so I'm, you know, I think we'll pull off something sometime. <laughs> Don't doubt it for a second. And there you were talking about the fact that all those years ago you created that network of amazing women that drove you to end up as a non-exec on the board yeah. of a building society. And here you are doing it all again, this time with your daughter and her amazing friends. Yeah. More power to you, Prue. Whatever you're having, I'll have it a bucket of it, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet of you. No, honestly, it's been my my on, um, a really deep pleasure to spend time with you today. I've loved reading your books. I love what you do on television. But more than anything, I just hope I grow up to be like you, Prue. <laughs> oh, I think you look like you're doing fine without me. Well, I just, you know, I, I think, you know, yeah, sometimes I'm going to have a little word with myself and say, what would Prue do? Be more Prue. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Hey, and good luck with the travel writing. And really but, will relish watching whatever relish come to the screen with. Thanks, you. Thanks, you. Thank you. My huge thanks to Dame Prue Leith. And if you fancy a slice of bliss on toast, her new cookbook with a variety of toppings is available wherever you get your books. And if homeware is your thing, check out her beautifully brightly coloured cookware uh, available at her website or at uniqueandunity.co.uk. And if you fancy listening in on some more conversations with other great dames, we've got Dame Arlene Phillips and Dame Denise Lewis in our back catalogue, not to mention other culinary greats with episodes from Tom Carriage, James Martin, John Turow, The Hairy Bikers, Marcus Waring and former Bake Off winner Candice Brown. And don't forget, I'm going to be back on Tuesday with a new drop of Something from the Cellar, a midweek catch-up on some of our very fine vintage guests from the White Wine Question Time Cellar. And of course, I'll be back with a brand new guest next Friday. Until then, thanks so much for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.